Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. It's my pleasure now to invite Dr. Hodakevich to talk about the town of Minsk and the gubernia of Minsk on the eve of the Great War. Thank you both to Dr. Ziak and to Nick Chekersky. Uh, I am very pleased to be marching in the intrepid footsteps of my predecessors. It all tallies. Well, I won't... Oh, okay, we have a map. I won't bore you too much, but I'll speak about the town of Pinsk in the gubernia of Minsk in diathembric hexameter. No, I'm just kidding. It, it does rhyme. We have, I think, more. There's the Russian Empire and its intermarium part, but in a modern rendition. Here is Russian Empire in 1914. I will be speaking about a little region of it, Pinsk and Pinsk area, Pinschizna, uh, on the eve of World War II. I mean, of World War I, yes, 1914. So here you have it. Oh. Pinsk is a little bit south of Baranovice. So this is old Ruthenian land, old Ruthenian land. In fact, it was a sovereign Ruthenian uh, Pinsk principality, which eventually was absorbed by the Grand Duchy of Lithuania uh, about, for about 500 years. It was joined, therefore, to the crown of Poland including then with the Commonwealth, the first Commonwealth of Poland, Lithuania. Most of the inhabitants were Orthodox peasants. There was nobility, both petty nobility and aristocracy, well, as well as anything in the middle. The most prominent portion of the population was called landed nobility, Ziemianie, uh, and most of them were, or at least the plurality of them, and the most prominent of them were Catholics. Then there were some Uniates, uh, Calvinists, and there were burghers. Most of the burghers were Jewish, that is, in the little towns, uh, the majority of the population was Jewish. That little towns were called the shtetl, 
as a result of the uh, second partition of um, uh, Poland in 1793, Pinsk found itself in the Russian Empire uh, beyond the borders of the truncated kingdom of Poland. The Poles used to say that Pinsk uh, was located uh, on the outskirts of the so-called taken lands, Ziemie Zabrane, together with the uh, territories of the former Minsk uh, Voyevodstvo or province, and the part and parts of the Novogrudek and Vilno, Polotsk and Brzesk uh, Voyevodstva. They were all lumped together to create a new Russian administrative unit called Minsk or Gubernia of Minsk. Within the Gubernia of Minsk, we find Pinsk and the region of Pinsk, Pinszczyzna. It's constituted one of 13 counties, powiaty of, um, uh, of the gubernia. After the reforms of 1842, uh, there were only nine counties, including the county of Pinsk. So according to Tsarist nomenclature, Pinsk was a county town within the gubernia of Minsk, with its capital in Lithuanian <coughs> Minsk, not to be confused with the uh, uh, Mazovian Minsk, which is way to the west in the Kingdom of Poland. So Minsk, Lithuanian Minsk, was the center and the frame of reference for the, uh, for the county of Pinsk as the main administrative hub, economic hub, political hub, and cultural hub. Once again, this county town was overwhelmingly Jewish. In 1914, the county's population tally stood at about 240,000 people within the city itself, within Pinsk, there were 38,683 humans. And Pinsk served everybody as, as, the, as the administrative, economic, political, and cultural center. In, Min, in Pinsk alone, 228,063 inhabitants were Jewish and 10,623 inhabitants were Christian. As far as Catholics, there were 7,002 of them. And when I say Catholics, those were the people who considered themselves and were considered as Poles. This includes people of Ruthenian and other ethnic origin, not only Polish, they would say, culturally, if you're nobility, you're Polish. This was not an ethnic tag. It was a cultural tag. Uh, incidentally, according to the official tally, and I'll get there, the, uh, there weren't as many Poles. Um, as far as the Orthodox, 
There were 3,621 of them. Russians, Belarusians, Ukrainians, and uh, uh, Polesians, so-called locals. Locals were people who really didn't have a national identity. They spoke the simple language, poprostemu. So at church, if they were Catholic, they would pray in Latin and Polish, but every day they would speak the simple language. Uh, the Jews spoke Yiddish every day and during their holidays in Hebrew, although um, the knowledge of Hebrew became more, once, more widespread with the spread uh, of, uh, of um, Zionism. Uh, the Poles functioned in Polish, in the simple language, and in Russian. Uh, but the educated ones among them knew Latin, Greek, and usually French and German. Uh, the same goes for the educated strat uh, strata of other ethnic groups. Russian was the lingua franca. Not only the Christians spoke Russian, but also Jews, and that includes the Jewish elite, whether uh, of the assimilationist kind or the Zionist kind, or religious kind. Uh, most of the simple people who lived in Minsk plied some kind of a trade uh, and traded. Usually, there was a rule. Christians worked for Christians, and the Christians usually worked in two uh, uh, river depots where uh, boats were fixed, but mostly at the uh, railroad works set up right on the outskirts of town where railroad equipment was fixed. There were about 1,500 Christian workers. The Jewish people uh, worked in factories which belonged to Jewish entrepreneurs. They made candles, soap, matches, various byproducts of wood and wood processing, furniture, you name it. But they also made beer and anything else you could make out of agricultural products. The factories and little Jewish enterprises employed about 5,000 people. Just like Christians, Jewish entrepreneurs did not employ, didn't, didn't employ uh, 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 Christian workers and there's there are statements to the effect that that was the case until the late 1930s so until World War II. The majority of the Jewish population of Pinsk plied trade including itinerant trade, uh, trade. they made shoes they worked as tailors bakers, and so forth. Outside of the city itself, Orthodox Polesians, or Polish Tutsi, 
almost exclusively uh, peasants, constituted the largest uh, nationality group in the county. They accounted for about 190,000 people. It's very difficult to state how many of them in 1914 consciously considered themselves Belarusians. There were no sociological studies or poems. Uh, most of them most likely maintain a local outlook and mentality. They were classified and they classified themselves as locals. They were almost totally demobilized politically. Their level of high culture was non-existence and so non-existent and so was their consciousness, national consciousness. Aside from the Orthodox Church, they didn't really have any organizations of their own or almost none. Uh, there were Polish groups in Pinsk that supported folklore and uh, the language, including producing first uh, grade school level textbooks for those people. But I wouldn't call it national Belarusian consciousness raising. The locals, in particular, the, 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 the most wealthy among those peasants, participated in various initiatives of the Tsarist government, uh, symbolically even in the self-government bodies which were based on a curial system, that is, you voted according to your social estate. There were the so-called Huopomani among the Polish nobility who were very, which means peasant maniacs, who were very keen on perhaps igniting Belarusian national consciousness. One of the Polish nobility who was ethnically speaking Lithuanian when he was elected to the Duma following the revolution of 1905, upon arriving in St. Petersburg, he pronounced himself to be a Belarusian nationalist, rep representing that area to everyone's chagrin. <clears throat> His command of the local dialect was not that stellar. But that's what he liked to do. And this was in keeping with the tradition of the old Commonwealth. So he was seen by other Polish nobles as just an eccentric. Uh, in any event, there were also 8,000 other Jewish people living in the shtetls of, uh, of the county. And again, most of them plied trade and craftsmanship. Both uh, city workers and agricultural laborers were banned by the government from any and all agitation that could result in strikes. Uh, 
Yet there was, as we'll see, a rather robust political life. As you see, most of the time in the Pinsk area, nationality overlapped with religion. Generally, orthodoxy was uh, privileged, and so was the Russian nationality. And this is important to understand that the Tsarist government considered Ukrainians and Belarusians as tribes of the Russians. So in all population tallies and in um, all other calculations, everybody from that group, in particular all Orthodox, were counted as Russians. Uh, aside from religious, ethnic divisions, there were also estate hierarchies. At the very top, there was the nobility. They were privileged. Naturally, if you were Russian and Orthodox among the nobility, and there were those in the county of Pins, you were most privileged of anybody else. Even though, legally speaking, uh, for instance, unless the Tsar stripped you of your nobility and he stipulated otherwise, you could travel alone to Siberia to report for your punishment, perhaps with an escort, but you would not be given chains. Now, the exception, obviously, was Polish insurgents. Um, Lenin traveled with weapons to Siberia and a library. Because he was a nobleman, he was a hereditary nobleman. Totally different legislation, if you can imagine it. Um, at the very bottom, there were the peasants. Uh, they were naturally the least privileged for social, political, and economic reasons. Although I have to say that uh, the Orthodox among them, if they cared, could feel better about themselves because obviously the system of orthodoxy and nationality dominated in the Russian Empire for all it was worth for um, the peasants. It probably improved the mood of some of them. But um, that didn't really translate into much tangible stuff. And the most underprivileged legally and culturally was the Jewish population, especially the poorest ones. They uh, experienced all forms of discrimination, including they were not permitted to travel without uh, permission, official permission, and they, of course, were not allowed to, uh, they were not allowed to um, settle outside of the so-called Jewish Pale of Settlement. The Jewish Pale of Settlement more or less corresponded to the old lands of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. I think since the 15th century, where Muscovy experienced a heresy called Judaizing, a, the Patriarchate prevailed on the Grand Duke and later the Tsar not to allow any Jews in. And once the Russian Empire absorbed the, Pol uh, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth by partitioning it, it also inherited the Jewish population that had been allowed to go anywhere and even had its own government. 
self-government, the council of three, four lands. Uh, but now, once the Jewish population found itself in the empire, in the Russian empire, all the privileges were stripped and they were confined to the lands, old lands of Poland, Lithuania. Couldn't settle anywhere else. Of course, wealthy Jews were doing just fine for themselves. If you converted to orthodoxy from Judaism, you were treated as an orthodox Russian. Uh, for instance, Lenin's one of Lenin's grandfathers was Jewish. Uh, Moshe, Moshe Isai uh, Itzakovich Blank, all he had to do was convert to uh, orthodoxy and he prospered. He changed his name to Alexander Blank. There was no, and he was actually a, from a little bit further south. Zhitomir, the family was, and later Odessa. Otherwise, they were Swedish and German and Kalmyk and Russian, which makes, uh, which makes Lenin a usual imperial Russian hybrid. Uh, in any event, the Poles also were discriminated against as far as religion and the language. Each national uprising brought with it consequences. There, were, there was administrative punishment and discrimination. For instance, petty nobility was disenfranchised and treated like peasants. In the Commonwealth, they may have had 40 acres and a mule, but they had a vote. Under the Russian Empire, no more. They were treated like peasants. Not by the Poles, in general, because everybody recognized uh, petty nobility as the mainstay of the Commonwealth, but by law, by the Russian government, they were not treated as nobility. In particular, after 1863, blow, uh, blows were rained up on the Poles. Things improved only after the revolution of 1905. However, like with the Jewish population, there were still very many legal handicaps that the, the Catholics and, and the, um, the Poles and the Jews faced. The nobility, once again, Polish nobility even, did not suffer as many handicaps as others. And the nobility, Polish nobility, old Polish nobility, continued to lead in on the political, social, economic, and cultural fields of uh, the county. They were the people who first poured their spirit into various local organizations such as agricultural cycles to which addressed local problems of economic improvement and from a long-term perspective also uh, the national Polish cause. The nobility were the focus point of the whole of Polish community. That is, the people looked up to the old elites despite 
the general reality of Russian rule. However, the most important from, uh, even though it was um, complementary to the nobility, the most important focus of uh, the Polish life of uh, the Pinsk region was, of course, the Catholic Church. At the lowest level, the priests not only uh, uh, served the spiritual needs of their parishioners, but they also uh, were involved in education and charity work. They were most of all groups involved in the spiritual educational national life. Teachers helped them. They worked hand in glove uh, with various representatives of the Polish intelligentsia, doctors, lawyers, etc. It was thanks to the priests that Polish youth enjoyed first semi-clandestine and more openly the scouting movement. Discreetly, everything that was Catholic related to Polishness. Now, make no mistake, some, and I'll talk about it uh, uh, in, a, in a while, but some people who considered themselves Polish were not Catholic, and they were accepted in the body politics because that had been the, um, that had been the case in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. You didn't have to be a Catholic to be to call yourself Polish. But the church was the focus, especially for the common people. So children were taught Polish patriotism and various formal and informal structures, mainly and ostentatiously charitable clubs work to popular, popularize culture and history of the old commonwealth. That's why it was popular to create various agricultural and crafts societies and circles, uh, development banks and various cooperatives, as well as other economic organizations of self help. All of this was predicated on Polish patriotism in Pinsk. Open political activity was extremely limited. Just like culture, uh, most activists concentrate on the maximum utilization of freedoms granted from above in 1905 by the Tsar because of the revolution. That in turn translated into great support for conservative landed nobility and in particular for the um, members of the so-called Polish circle in the Duma, Russian parliament in St. Petersburg. Nonetheless, romantic memory about the uprisings was permanently affixed in the subconscious. It inspired young generations which tended to be 
very strongly anti-Tsarist and quite disinclined towards the people they dismissed as Moscovites. Various liberal and socialist trends began penetrating, however superficially, in particular among the intelligentsia of, Pol of Polish Pinsk. They reflected a certain attitude to reality rather than concrete political activities by socialists and liberals in Pinsk. Uh, Pinsk was too small simply to uh, devote yourself to socialism. That's at least on the Polish side. What the Poles were doing of Pinsk was to restore the old Commonwealth at the local level. So to re resurrect all the institutions they could and to restitch what had been destroyed by uh, Russia, by the empire. They naturally had, especially the educated, uh, their sympathies, their political sympathies in St. Petersburg uh, as well as in the, the Vistula country, meaning the Kingdom of Poland, to the west. It's easiest to do a case study of the Polish community of Pinsk by focusing on the Catholic Church. So the decanate, the Roman Catholic decanate of Pinsk was one of the ten uh, administrative units which was subordinated to the dioceses of Minsk, or more correctly, the Minsk Mohylev dioceses. It was located in Lithuanian Minsk, and its at its head there was uh, Archbishop um, uh, Archbishop Vincente Kluczynski. His bishop suffragan of Mohylev was was um, uh, Dr. Jan Cieplak later martyred by the communists. The site of the decanate was in Pinsk itself. The Pinsk decanate was divided into, into three parishes, including one in the town itself. Within that jurisdiction, there were altogether 10 churches and 14 chapels, not to count all the chapels in manor houses, so among the landed nobility. Everybody had a chapel at home. Uh, there were seven priests, including three in the very city itself. Local Catholics in Pinsk prayed in two churches. One was um, made out of stone and it was erected in 1510 by King Sigismund the Elder. And the Prince Dolskis built a wooden one in 1595. There were further two chapels in Pinsk by the marketplace and by the cemetery, main chapels, and there were six smaller ones. Statistically, there were 700 faithful per temple or 2,334 Catholics per priest. Why? Well, 
the Russian government didn't like more Catholic priests. <clears throat> the the uh, deacon of the Pinsk church was Father Stanislaw Wojtyk, who would be later deported by the Germans in 1915. And the, his vicar was um, Father Zygmunt Siemaszko. Prefect, a priest, Kazimierz Bukraba, was director of all Catholic schools in the city. Now, in the entire decanate, there were almost six, uh, 16,000 parishioners, including 7,002 in the city of Pinsk itself. However, according to the Russian population tally, there were only 2,784 Catholics in Pinsk. Why? Because they only counted Poles or people who were obviously Polish as, as Catholics. I guess this hasn't really been studied. <laughs> in the Pinsk area, in, of, of the, uh, just like elsewhere in the uh, gubernia or diocese of Minsk, there was a deficit of priests. Seven priests for 16,000 uh, parishioners in the decanate, and one priest per 2,334 parishioners in the city. This reflected a hundred years of persecution of Catholicism, Polishness in the Pinsk area and elsewhere uh, in, in, the, in the taken lands. Since the revolution of 1905, many handicaps were removed. Some of the problems were beginning to be addressed and remedied, but there were still uh, there was still prejudicial legislation. For example, you could not invite without a state certificate faithful from outside the area to celebrate your church patron's day. So nobody could come from the outside without an official government permit. Uh, actually to no church holiday could anybody be invited without a government permit. Further, the Tsarist authorities censored everything including church banners. They scrutinized it, they scrutinized them whether there were any patriotic symbols or slogans. This was not allowed. They also, the Russian government also, uh, representatives also would um, monitor slogans used in church. That means they had snitches listening to, or at least in theory, to uh, sermons, uh, whether there was anything that hinted at Polish patriotism. The Tsarist government aspired to regulate all formal and informal functions and church ceremonies, including collecting charitable funds for something that was not approved by the pre-approved by the government. Naturally, autocracy was not totalitarianism, and most of those measures 
uh, fell by the wayside in particular after 1905 and almost anywhere in the boonies. Catholic priests constituted uh, a, a very important elite of the city and, it, and its environs. Naturally, Orthodox priests were not only tolerated by most favored. Therefore, the servants of Rome had to yield space to them in the spiritual hierarchy. The same thing applies to rabbis. On the outside, in the world of the Russian Empire, the rabbis were at the very bottom of the hierarchical ladder of all divines, of all religious specialists. At the same time, they were the most revered and the most respected among much of their own society. The only people who rebelled against the rabbis are the, the young, or some of the young, and, or secularizing young. And after a while, in particular, leftists of various orientations uh, of who preferred revolution to Judaism and Jewishness. They, those people, the leftists, also began to form an alternative hierarchy. Uh, initially, however, from the 1980s, the hierarchy of modernizing Jews still overlapped with the traditional religious Jewish community. There was no cleavage as it would appear in the 20th century. So I'm speaking here of the so-called Zion uh, or lovers of Zion, proto-Zionists, before, Her before Herzl ever had any dream. There were already people, people in the pale of Jewish settlement who thought about the Holy Land, return to Israel. They were called the lovers of Zion, uh, proto-Zionists. They mostly concentrated on social and cultural issues, in particular the rebuilding of the Hebrew language and the transformation of their society in a, a modern way, but in an evolutionary way, not a revolutionary way. They, they uh, founded various clubs, charitable organizations and cooperatives, which, however, also uh, uh, arose on the initiative on non, of non-Zionist Jews as well. So if, if you do a micro-study, there is a myriad of initiatives and you get very confused. <laughs> you have to go with a fine-tooth comb or, or, or you will mistake Yiddishists for Hebraists, folkists for socialists, etc., etc. Um, under the Russian uh, rule, such lovers of Zion organized themselves, as I said much earlier, than uh, Herzl even dreamt about it. 
one of the most prominent activists of the Pinsk proto-Zionism was Grigory Luria, or Luri later. He was a, a son of serious, prominent local um, uh, local entrepreneurs. They were called the Rothschilds of Pinsk, the Luri family. Uh, and he showed up at the first Zionist Congress in Basilea in 1897 to see what Austrian and German Jews were all up to. <laughs> How come this for them was a new idea? Because in the Russian Empire that had been going on for a while now. This type of Zionism was moderate, liberal, and to the critics, bourgeois. Uh, this type of Zionism wanted to organize the uh, borderlands jury in Hebrew and autonomously to prepare their co-ethnics, co-religionists to <coughs> gradual immigration to Palestine where a Jewish state was supposed to be recreated based on liberal and cooperative doctrines, not socialist doctrines. In Pinsk, therefore, until the Great War, General Zionism dominated. General Zionists coexisted with religious Zionists of the Mizrahi, who were a center-right orientation. Other orientations were noisy, but they were not dominant before the war. Of course, various alternatives emerged much more radical. The first uh, in this tradition in Pinsk there emerged um, a Marxist workers Bund. The Bundes promised uh, a Yiddish paradise on uh, a Yiddish socialist paradise on earth including an autonomy for the Jewish community in an atheist utopia. So the Bundes hated not only all Zionists, but they hated the religious Jews too. Um, there were, uh, they had competition, so there were the local folkists or leftist populists who also stressed the primacy of Yiddish. A left-wing party appear, appeared called Poale Sion, or Workers of Zion, who championed Hebrew, autonomy, and socialism, and atheism. But their paradise was supposed to be in Hebrew. Preferably in Palestine, if not, then autonomously uh, in Pins. They were undecided yet. So, in theory, they talked about Palestine, but in practice, they focused. They were also Marxists, like the Bund, but they were not Yiddishists. Um, Jewish leftist alternative elites didn't really matter for much, although they really did worry the Orthodox majority with their rabid atheism. Yet, they never managed to undermine the rabbis. The rabbis, still orthodox rabbis, 
Pinsk and Karlin were the, were the centers of important centers of rabbinical studies. And uh, until the war, the radicals among the Jewish community really didn't uh, stand a chance against the liberal general Zionists on the one hand and against the uh, um, Hasidim of Karlin as well as the Orthodox of um, Pinsk. By the way, the Hasidim and the Orthodox fought tooth and nail against each other. So that's yet another story. <laughs> as you see, human life it was quite predictable. There was conflict, there was cooperation, there was neutrality, everything. Life in Pinsk for both Jews and Christians proceeded in congruence with the religious calendar, which is an indication that leftist craziness did not take over any of the communities in Pinsk. Because had there been enough revolutionaries, they would have stopped observing the rhythm of life as uh, ordained by God, the religious would argue. The influence of general Zionists reflected their rather high level of education and wealth. Even if they were non-believers or lost faith and almost all uh, wealthy Jewish families in Pinsk descended from very prominent rabbis so but at the end of the 19th century the beginning of the 20th there were already inroads by secularization even if they were non-believers or only nominally practicing Judaism general Zionists tended uh, and endeavor to treat other Jews with respect, that is, religious ones in particular, because they considered them the carriers of Jewish culture. So they treated them with respect. For example, uh, the owners of Jewish factories, such as Luri or Halpern, who were Zionists, prayed together with the workers. They prayed together with the workers. And they actively opposed the Jewish radicals. This was also because most strikes and most revolutionary activity was targeted them. So Jewish entrepreneurs were the main victims of any radicalism in Pinsk. And that included, for instance, the Luri family, which was um, connected to the general Zionists. In one word, if right before World War I, the Jewish community of Pinsk had experienced tremendous changes, but the ferment to a large degree was limited to themselves. But they did worry about the Tsarist police and gendarmerie. In the revolution of 1905 and later, there were strikes, demonstrations, and acts of violence, including attempts at terrorism. 
but as I said, since the workers were segregated by faith, so you were Jewish, you worked for a Jewish entrepreneur, you were Christian, you worked for a Christian entrepreneur, uh, the violence did not convert. It separately touched communities, separate communities. But the countryside, for the most part, in the revolution, remained peaceful. There was maybe an uptick of timber theft and cattle rustling, but otherwise it was not anything horrific. But because of violence, rumors spread to the Christians, especially in the countryside, that there was something going on. And this way, Jewish affairs impacted also the Christians. And I don't mean the police, I mean other inhabitants would find out that there were things going on that otherwise had been completely absent to them because of the remoteness of most of the inhabitants of the county. Uh, now, as far as the city, the town elites of Pinsk, as well as other little towns of the county, uh, the people at the very top were bureaucrats or officials, entrepreneurs, intelligentsia, and uh, divines of various confessions. As far as nationality, the Russians occupied the top rung. They were the official nationality, and they concentrated mostly on their own interests, which among the officials, police, policemen, and military reflected the aims of the Tsar and his government in Pinsk. So keep quiet. Pay taxes, obey. That was basically the idea. The officials were nominated at the top in the Tsarist system because that's what the power was. Uh, among them, the most prominent were the mayor of Pinsk, Sergei Georgievsky, a Russian, of course as well as uh, the members of uh, uh, the city administration, Konstantin Grabievsky and Kachanovsky. Along with um, Bronislav Borisovich, they were all Orthodox Christians. Then there was something called the uh, the, the uh, the county land administration. This was, I'd say, a proto-self-government of sorts. Its chairman was a Russian, and most of the members were of the executive were um, non-Poles. A self-government participants were partly nominated and partly elected. They were either a landed nobility or peasants. And most of them were Russians. 26 of them were elected, 
four of them were appointed, which included the local Orthodox priest. Um, however, there were also six Poles elected of the landed nobility. They enjoyed high social prestige, but their political power, not only were they a minority on the executive, on the land county land council, uh, uh, but their political power was limited by um, administrative and military authorities. So, let's just say they were tokens. Uh, in the hierarchy of intelligentsia, the most prominent ones were doctors. And, and um, uh, there were only 22 doctors for over 200,000 population in the entire country. Twelve of them resided in Pinsk itself. There was one woman, Dr. Ruchla Wein, uh, Jewish, but the doctors were all of, of, of all sorts of national, na all sorts of national nationalities, Catholics, uh, Orthodox, and Jews. There was officially one lawyer, and he was not a full-fledged attorney, Yusuf Gralewski, uh, and there were two notary publics in the city. Yes. Further, there were, um, as far as the intelligentsia, there were teachers, Christians, both Christians and Jews, at least 20 people. I say at least because if you are a Malamed or Jewish religious teacher, uh, relig uh, then you weren't necessarily registered. You didn't come forward to be registered by the Tsarist authorities. So this requires more studies. There were 11 schools in Pinsk, including two um, Jewish schools, junior highs. There were also the headers. Um, and as I mentioned, the most prominent people in the county were the landed nobility. And one, and one of the most important of them was Roman Skirmund. He served in the county council, in the Duma, and he was also a um, representative with the marshal of nobility. But the marshal of nobility was, of course, a Russian because that's the way the elections were uh, set up. Uh, the nobility tended to work in harmony with Jewish entrepreneurs. But in general, the system uh, encouraged and promoted those who identify themselves as Orthodox and Russians. I've mentioned about the elections of the curial system. It is important to realize that the Russian government considered only Catholics as Poles, but only those who were able to prove that they were Polish, really, so ethnically Polish, 
which is very silly because the nobility was of different ethnic backgrounds, Catholic nobility. Uh, automatically, Calvinists and others were assigned to the Russian Curia to vote, so there would be more votes against the Polish nobility. The Calvinists rebelled because they were all Polish. So they wanted to be counted in the Polish Curia, which created a, a mini-crisis. And then they were, after 1905, they were permitted to do so. In any event, there were various fears and hopes concerning the coming world war. Uh, generally speaking, the Poles, Polish elite was happy that Russia was allied with Great Britain and uh, France, because the Poles believed that would moderate the Russian government. Now, the Jewish community had no such hopes. They rooted for Germany. Uh, yet, nobody predicted how destructive and horrible the war would be, and there is hardly any work on World War I because when Hitler and Stalin came 20 years later, or 25 years later, after 1914, it simply made World War I appear like a holiday. And there is a myth of the benevolent German occupation in World War I, which still lingers, and we need much more work to assess all of this, which I will inform you about later. But that's your Pinsk on the eve of the Great War in 1914. Thank you very much. <laughs> so I invite you outside, and we can chat later. <laughs>